This week on the Rotten and Righteous Podcast, we reminisce about the good times. Blood, blood, blood. All I remember was blood. Hello and welcome back to Rotten or Righteous Mash and Sackcloth, the only podcast that is like the U.S. Postal Service. We're predominantly male, consistently deliver junk, kind of slow, and are rapidly becoming irrelevant. I'm trying to find something here to say, no, Zach, you're wrong, but there's nothing. Nope. I know. There's nothing. Yep. Um, with me today is the man... What? Do you know what's better than nothing? Something? Not us. That's <laughs> pretty low. Well, yeah, I can't. I can't argue with that. All right. So, again, let me try to introduce this this person with me. With me today, as always, is the only man I've known to volunteer for a colonoscopy. He's Scott Judge. Oh, you know what's sad? There's, there's truth in that because I, did. I knew I, I knew I was due, but my doctor didn't. I'm like, hey, you know, doc, uh, there's a history in the family. It's been a little bit of time. Probably need to get this done. <sighs> I didn't need to know that, nor did I know that when I made that up about you. And me, well, I'm still sorry we're doing this. I'm Zach Geiler. Before we get into our episodes of Mash, I do have a. Uh, Story to tell Scott. Hey, Scott, did you ever hear about the atomic bomb accident at Mars Bluff in Mar- or on March 11th, 1958? Why, no, Zach, I didn't. Well, it just so happened that in 1958, a U.S. Air Force plane accidentally dropped a nuclear weapon. The 1958... <laughs> <Great> story! <laughs> no! Hang on. Anyway, moving on to this episode of MASH. <laughs> on March 11th, 1958, a U.S. Air Force bombing B-47ELM Stratojet from Hunter Air Force Base, operated by the 375th Bombardment Squadron of the 308th Bombardment Wing near Savannah, Georgia, took off approximately at 4.34 p.m. and was scheduled to fly to the United Kingdom, then to North Africa as part of Operation Snow Flurry, the aircraft was carrying nuclear weapons on board in the event of war with the Soviet Union breaking out. Air Force Captain Bruce Kolka, who was the navigator and bombardier, was summoned to the bomb bay after the captain of the aircraft, Captain Earl Kohler, had encountered a fault light in the cockpit, indicating that the bomb's harness locking pin did not engage. As Kolka reached around the bomb to pull himself up, he mistakenly grabbed the emergency release pin. The Mark VI nuclear bomb dropped to the bomb bay doors of the B-47, and the weight forced the doors open, sending the bomb 15,000 feet down to the ground below. Two sisters, six-year-old Helen and nine-year-old Frances Craig, along with their nine-year-old cousin, Ella Davies, were playing 200 yards from a playhouse in the woods that had been built for them by their father, Walter Gregg, who had served as a paratrooper during World War II. The playhouse was struck by the bomb. 
its conventional high explosives detonated, destroying the playhouse and leaving a crater 70 feet wide and 35 feet deep. Fortunately, the fissile nuclear core was stored elsewhere on the aircraft. All three girls were injured in the explosion, as were Walter, his wife Effie, and son Walter Jr. Seven nearby buildings were damaged as well. The United States Air Force was sued by the family of the victims, and they received $54,000. The incident made national and international headlines, and the crater is still present today, although overgrown by vegetations and is marked with a historical marker. However, access to the site is limited because it's located on private property with no public ask or access road. Wow. The end. The end. What a story. 35 foot deep. And they can say they survived an atomic bombing. No, they can say that their government dropped a bomb on them. Is what the, that's, that's what true. I would say. When you go to bed tonight, just remember that at one point, not that long ago, the United States Air Force accidentally dropped a nuclear bomb on innocent Americans. On oh, two little kids. I think we're in the wrong playhouse, Zachy. I'm just saying that this is... Uh, <clears throat> Mortifying? Yeah, it's kind of terrifying that you can just accidentally, oopsie, drop a nuclear bomb. Yeah. Oops. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> Hope you weren't hurt. What year was that again? 1958. 58. You know what was also happening in 1958? Uh, my dad was 10. Yes. Also, the Korean War was going to start in three more years. That's right. Did they make any TV shows about the Korean War? I think they made one called... Crazy Korean and the kooky Canucks. How can Canada won the war of Northern aggression? And there you have it, folks. That's a wrap for this week. Well, we've got this week's title, so. <laughs> Hey, this week's episode is also one of my nicknames from high school. It's called Sticky Wicket. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Why? You know, since no one listens to the show, we should do a poll. Would would people rather call you Ringback or Sticky Wicket? Neither. I think they would rather call me Zach. Nah, I'm I'm still I'm still one hundred percent butt into ring banger. Anyways, this episode, episode number twenty one of MASH. This episode opens like many people's divorce proceedings with a poker game. But it's interrupted when Radar, who is up at the moment, has lots of money. Uh, here's choppers coming from far away. And sure enough, here come these choppers. And I gotta say, they're the same choppers 
that came when they filmed the uh, introduction to the show. It says, Hawkeye is wearing a completely different shirt and hat that he did not have on while in the swamp, which is weird that he stopped what he was doing in order to go over and get a Hawaiian shirt on. I mean, you know, when people were dead coming in, you'd think that that <laughs> you wouldn't have time to put on your festive uh, beach wear, but not Hawkeye. He definitely pops that on. And uh, they Small get to work. Details. I want to know how many times they use that footage of them rushing up to the helicopter just throughout the series. Like any time somebody has to rush to get a, a person off the helicopter, they just have the same footage play. <laughs> same, same footage. Uh, but this um, helicopter delivers, which probably thought that it would deliver wounded soldiers. And Hawkeye and Margaret operate on a patient. And Hawkeye, the whole time, is insulting Frank because Frank is Frank. However, after the surgery is done, Hawkeye's patient fails to improve. And Hawkeye becomes pretty uh, obsessed with this case. To the point of taking his frustrations out on Frank. Now, to be fair, I don't think Hawkeye needs a dying patient in order to take his frustrations out on Frank. (laughs) It's true. And Hawkeye gives uh, what is come to be known in some circles of MASH fans as the reason you suck speech. That's true. That's a true story. When Frank presses Hawkeye for his opinion on his performances in surgery, Hawkeye tells him, and I quote, You think you're the only one who's busy. You asked for help three times today. Three When you make a mistake, you're not smart enough to admit it and start over. We're not here to compensate for you. You're inconsiderate, insulting with your nurses, bloody arrogant, demanding, distracting, and dumb. And those are your good points. You're also surgically incompetent. I wouldn't let you operate on me for dandruff. (laughs) And finally... Which is funny. And finally, you are a total and definitive pain in the gluteus maximus. So to sum it up, go ahead. This is why you suck. This is why it sucks. This is why you suck, Frank. Yep. That might be the episode title, too. Yes. So... Hawkeye is just done with Frank. And when Frank, later on after the Why You Suck speech, goes to Hawkeye and starts goading him because his patient is is having a bad time, Hawkeye just decides that he's going to murder Frank. Not really. He just lunges at him, grabs him by his lapels, and shakes him a little bit. And he tells Frank, I, I'll kill you. And then Margaret goes, you'll have to go through me first. And then Hawkeye goes, that's the best offer I've had all day. <laughs> it was always good when he could get her, get at her a little bit. Absolutely. And just see her lose, lose her mind. And so Hawkeye ends up falling asleep in post-op next to his patient, snapping at Trapper for playing poker too loudly, and eventually moving out of the swamp to the supply tent. But while in the supply tent, to try to think about the case, he's interrupted by a date with a a pretty young nurse. 
he turns her away, which means that Trapper really is concerned. Because, man... The day Hawkeye doesn't turn girls away. No, not at all. It, 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 man, it, it's like it, it's like the equivalent of me when I was two and had pneumonia at Christmas, and I came downstairs instead of opening presents. I asked to go back to bed. My parents knew there was something wrong with me. Wow. Yeah. Well, when Hawkeye turns down unwrapping a girl, you know something's wrong with him. He also turns away Trapper, two other soldiers, and Henry. Henry implies that Hawkeye is more concerned about his ego than his patience. And that Hawkeye goes, no, and then tells Henry that he's done. Says you. And then Henry leaves and Hawkeye has some peace and quiet. While thinking about the case outside of the supply tent, Hawkeye encar- or encounters Margaret. And uh, she theorizes that they may have made a mistake in the surgery eliciting extreme doubt from Hawkeye because Hawkeye's perfect and he never did nothing wrong to hurt nobody never. I'm the best surgeon in this here ding-dang in this ding-dang Korea. But during the night... In the whole shooting match. During the night, Hawkeye has an epiphany. He's like, I gotta cut this kid open again. And he does. He reopens the patient to find a small piece of shrapnel damage behind the sigmoid colon, which... Come on, Trapper, that's the first place you look. Even I know that. <laughs> Scott, would you have missed the sigmoid colon? I, I would have missed the sigmoid, sigmoid colon. Yep, the, the I, I sig- definitely would have. What about the what about the sigmoid semicolon? I, I'd miss the semicolon in the sigmoid Freud colon colon. But would you miss the sigmoid enterobank? Yes. Do you know what an enterobank is? Because I wouldn't have been in there. No. What's enterobank? An enterobank is my favorite form of punctuation because it's called an enterobank. And it is sometimes represented by an exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. But there is an actual Mm -hmm. enterobank symbol, which is a... Uh, question mark and a explanation po- or <laughs> explanation point. <laughs> you know, one of those famous explanation points, uh, an exclamation point like fused together is pretty cool. I mean, it's not as cool as the throne of the third heaven of the twice baked potato, well, but nothing is going to be as cool as that. So, Hawkeye realizes the problem is he missed the Sigmund colon, at which point Frank, who's who's looking over Hawkeye's shoulders, like, well, anybody could have missed that. And Hawkeye's like, thanks, Frank. And they hug and make out a little bit. And the colon's repaired and the the person lives. I mean, I get it. You know, Hawkeye Hawkeye dipped him and laid a smooch smacker on him. And he hurt his back, and now Hawkeye has a purple heart. The end. That's that's right. (laughs) That's how that works. This episode is also incredibly short. 
and it's called Major Fred C. Dobbs. Dobbs. So, the episode begins with Frank berating Nurse Ginger Bayless for no reason. And Horrible. He's such yeah, a jerk. He is. I mean, I hate that fictional character that doesn't exist in real life. So Hawkeye and Trapper console Ginger and set up Frank for one of their get-even pranks. And this prank just so happened to be placing his arm in a cast. Do <laughs> 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 you suppose we could pull that off at camp? No, I don't know how to put a cast I mean, on somebody. Do you? <laughs> get, well, no, but there's always there's always a first time and an opportunity to learn. We do get like a montage of all their heretofore unseen Frank pranks, which include putting his arm in a hel- helmet filled with tepid water <laughs> so that he pees himself. Hey, does that really work? I don't know. I mean, have you ever tried that so. on anybody? I think I've tried it once at like a sleepover when I was growing up, but I never remember anybody peeing themselves. Putting Frank's arm in a cast succeeds where no other prank has succeeded. And Frank finally demands that he be transferred out of the 4077th to another union. To another unit. To another unit, Uh Zach. Learn to speak. You know what that prank was? That prank was the straw. It's the straw that broke Frank's back. And he gets a purple heart. And he gets another purple heart, plus a discharge, or a transfer. So Frank goes and tells Margaret that he's leaving. And Margaret's like, was it something I did or something I didn't do? And Frank's like, no, Margaret. Nothing could make me stop cheating on my wife with you. You know, you know that. It's because of Hawkeye and Pierce. And then Frank starts going into this long diatribe of, of how much he loves uh, Hot Lips. Meanwhile, Hawkeye and Trapper sneak a microphone underneath the tent and record this whole whole thing. To which they then play over the loudspeakers. <laughs> now keep in mind, Margaret... And Frank, up to this point, think that they've kept their tete-a-tete a secret. But now... Up until... Now, at this point, they realize that everybody knows. And they are embarrassed. So Margaret demands a transfer as well. This is working out better than they ever hoped. They got rid of Frank and Hot Lips at the same time. But then, Henry's like, you guys are idiots. Because... As much as we don't like those two, they actually get work done. So until we find replacements, unlike you two who are spending all your time making bootleg hooch and pranking Frank, Frank and and Margaret are actually doing stuff. (laughs) Frank and Frank. Frank and Frank. That's my favorite band from the 50s. Frank and Frank and the Funky Bunch. (laughs) Frank and Frank and homemade hooch. Which, by the way, everybody, is the title of Zach's next autobiography. Right. 
No, it's actually from right. Ringbanger to Sticky Wicket, the Zach Geiler story. Um, <laughs> it's that Geiler story. We can title one of the chapters, Frank and Frank and Homemade Hooch. Right. So, Henry's like, you guys are going to have to work double shifts. You're going to have to pick up their slack until replacements arrive. Now, if there's one thing Hawkeye and Trapper like less than Frank and Margaret, it's working. So, they have to figure out how to get A Frank... A lot less. Frank staying. Well, it turns out that Radar has been panning for gold. Radar thinks that there's gold in them there hills. Turns out it's fool's gold. But Frank doesn't need to know that. Nonetheless. So one night they come in, and they're just shaking a bag of rocks saying, Oh, man. Look at all this we got. We're going to be so rich. And then they accidentally drop some of the gold. Well, they drop a piece of gold from a gold filling from the dentist tent. The The MASH has a dentist. We never saw him before now. I don't know if we see him again, but he does have a dentist in this episode because that's where they get a gold filling. So they're like, oh, man, we dropped some gold. Now, Frank finds this filling. He's like, oh, there's gold up in them hills. <laughs> Gold their hills. So Frank goes out to start panning for gold. And he withdraws his transfer request because Frank's a greedy little guy. And that's when Hawkeye and Trapper deface military property by painting a Jeep gold. Time. By painting, painting a Jeep gold and driving it around. Letting him know that they painted a whole bunch of rocks gold and convinced Frank they were real gold. So with a can of gold paint and the greed of ferret face, they get Frank to stay. Later, after surgery, Hawkeye and Trapper try to apologize to Frank for humiliating him again. But then Hawkeye ruins the moment by embracing Frank and giving him a big kiss. Much to Margaret's annoyance. The end. That's my boyfriend you're smooching on. Hey, if you were wondering who in the world Frank C. Dobbs is, well, you're not alone, and it also means that you're not obscenely old. It turns out that the episode is a reference to a John Huston film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which came out in 1948, in which Fred C. Dobbs, played by Humphrey Bogart of all people, becomes consumed with greed, a weakness that Hawkeye and Trapper exploit in order to keep Frank from actually leaving. The How episode does not feature a character named Major Frank C. Dobbs. We fool you. Yeah, so. Great. So great is times. There any, is there any, any other fun facts? Um, apparently, a great remark by Hawker, or Hawker. A great remark by Hawkeye. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's great. <sighs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. A great remark by Hawkeye to Trapper John, left out of the remastered version, is this. Hawkeye says, The three great emotions are greed, fear, and greed. Frank Burns is crazy about money. He married for money. He became a doctor for money. If there was money dying, he'd throw himself under a truck. 
However, it shows Hawkeye then remarking to Trapper about if Frank thought the get rich. Thought he would get rich, he would... Uh, nope, there's nothing else good. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nothing at all. It also says, and I quote, a subplot is how Colonel Blake is, Blake is in a very bad temper due to pain from a temporary filling in his tooth. Apparently, the MASH 4077th dentist is barely compent. <laughs> <laughs> He's not compent at all. You know what? It makes me feel good that we plagiarized so very much from the mash.fandom.com. But really, the mash.fandom.com seemed to be as compent as we are, Scott. I'm not so sure that they're not incompetent. I firmly believe that someday we're all going to have to stand before Jesus and explain how we spent our precious time here on this earth. And I get that me and Scott are going to be, well, without excuse for the most part. But you're going to have to explain why you listened to this show. (laughs) (laughs) All three of you. Hey, we did get a uh, new iTunes review, which I think it was from Luke, but it might not be because it doesn't sound like Luke. Oh, yeah? Yeah. This is the segment of the show that we never have because nobody ever writes an actual review for our show, where we read Yahoo or or, uh, um, podcast reviews, Apple podcast reviews. This five-star review is from May 5th, 2020, and it's from Luke2222 J-D-J-E-H-E. And it's titled, Sexiness Exuded. A true masterpiece of comedy. If you want to be a gangsta, which I know you do, add this podcast to your listening schedule for the know-how. I'm just reading a review. This is going to surprise everyone, but this is the end of the show. <laughs> for for rotten or righteous, I'm Zach Geiler. That's not true. He's the ring banger. And that is a fatty Arbuckle. And we... <laughs> We know that your day did not get better because of listening to this, but it could have been worse. Like what happened on Thursday, May 26th, according to Bad Days in History, a gleefully grim chronicle of misfortune, mayhem, and misery for every day of the year by Michael Farquhar. Today's uh, accident or (laughs) misfortunate uh, event took place on May 26, 1978, titled Accident Park, Thrill Rides Turn to Kill Rides. For summer fun and grievous injury, Action Park in New Jersey's Vernon Valley was the place to be. No pesky safety regulations would spoil the fun of the high-risk attractions, which appeared to have been designed by a demented 10-year-old and operated largely by indifferent kids not much older than that. And to dull the pain of broken bones and ferocious skin abrasions, 
refreshment stands aplenty kept underage patrons well lubricated with imported beer, served by other stoned adolescents. Little wonder Traction Park or Accident Park or Class Action Park was such a hit, especially with teens. It was a free-for-all like Lord of the Flies with water slides. There were literally hundreds of ways to get hurt or killed at the Perilous Amusement Park, which opened May 26, 1978, and churned out bombed and bloodied visitors for nearly two decades. A no- number of them reminisced about their harrowing experience in a delightful book, Weird New Jersey, Volume 2, your travel guide to New Jersey's local legends and best-kept secrets. Take the concrete fiberglass monstrosity known as the Alpine Slide, where burns and abrasions were the least of a rider's worries. A picture collage of previously maimed victims greeted pa- or patrons. <clears throat> a picture collage of previously maimed victims greeted patrons as they disgorged. Or <laughs> a picture collage. <laughs> done what? A picture collage of previously maimed victims greeted patrons as they were disgorged from a ski lift halfway up the mountain. You'd get on a low plastic seat with wheels and a bar for steering recalled Allison Becker in the book. Then they'd put you on a long, cracked downhill racetrack and send you on your way. No helmets, no brakes. None that worked, anyway. No warnings about the fact that a misplaced hand could result in chopped-off fingers. They actually had the audacity to have a slow lane and a fast lane. They should have just been called injured lane and dead lane. For those who preferred a wetter slide to Oblivion, Action Park offered plenty of options. There was the short-lived Cannonball Loop, which had notoriously decapitated a crash test dummy during testing. Other high-speed, less-than-smooth water slides sent mangled, disoriented kids hurtling out over precipices into grimy ponds or shallow pools, with leering attendants on constant lookout for slip bikinis or amusing injuries. Quote, whitewater, end quote, kayaking was another popular feature at the park until some poor patron's boat tipped over, as frequently happened, and while trying to ride it, he was electrocuted by a live wire exposed under the surface. Then there was cliff diving. As Chris Gethard fondly recalled, I remembered this because divers would jump into a pool that was used by anyone, not just those who had previously cliff dived. So many people thought they were just going swimming and had no idea that human bodies would be flying at them from 30 feet high in the sky. Lifeguards were kept especially busy at the enormous tidal wave pool, redubbed the grave pool, after several people drowned amid the artificially generated waves. You know, said a less than sympathetic park attendee, if somebody jumps in and can't swim, that's their problem. Amid all the mayhem, first aid carts prowled through the park. Kind of like golf carts, remembered Allison Becker, piloted by two zitty teens wearing oversized EMT shirts. The cart would inevitably be seen looping through the trails, grass, and little forests that surrounded the park. But when you saw it, you wouldn't see a kid with a scraped knee. You'd see a kid holding a blood-soaked towel on a huge head wound. You'd see a gash the size of a big gulp on someone's leg. Blood, blood, blood. All I remember was blood. All for under 25 bucks a person. Good night, everybody. <laughs> that would have been fun just to sit back and watch. <laughs>